Welcome to the Come Follow Me podcast for teens and for parents of teens, a podcast to supplement your weekly study of the Come Follow Me curriculum with thoughts, ideas, principles, stories, and questions all geared towards helping teenagers better follow Christ through their teenage years. Hey everybody, welcome back. I'm Josh Downs and today's episode is episode 42. We are looking at the books of Philippians and Colossians, or Colossians, I've heard it pronounced as well. Some of these names in the Bible, right? They give us a run for the money. Um, Today's theme is one of my favorite all-time themes, and one of my favorite all-time scriptures. It uh, is simply, I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. Growing up, and even as an adult, I have always loved superheroes. I just always have. In fact, Batman is my favorite. He just has been a hero of mine. I have idolized him. I have wanted to be him. I just love Batman. And I mean, who hasn't dreamed of being a superhero and really doing the impossible? That's the allure of being a superhero, being able to have incredible strength and power and basically being able to do anything. Well, that's one of the reasons that I've come to really love this verse and this theme so much. It tells us, gives us the secret even, if you will, of how to become more than what we are. How to do anything that we need to do that is good and that is right. How to overcome any obstacle and any challenge that we might face in this world. And how to become basically a real-life superhero. And it's through the greatest source of power and greatest source of strength that there is a power and strength that can be each and every one of ours. And that power and strength is and will always be found in Christ. And you're going to see that today as we go through a few of these principles and chapters. There is a lot in here about being able to do hard things and overcoming hard things and facing life's challenges and how to access that power and and better utilize it in our lives, especially to help both ourselves and, and to bless and lift others. The background of these chapters is as follows. Paul wrote his epistle to the Philippians and Colossians while he was a prisoner in Rome. Talk about going through something hard, right? Or facing something hard. But these letters don't have the tone that you might expect from someone in prison. Paul spoke more about joy, rejoicing, and thanksgiving than he did about afflictions and trials. Christ is preached, he said, and I therein do rejoice. Yea, and I will rejoice. And though I be absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in the Spirit, joying and beholding the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. Certainly the peace of God that Paul experienced in his difficult circumstances passeth all understanding. But it was nonetheless a reality. In our own trials, we can feel this same peace and rejoice in the Lord always. We can, as Paul did, rely completely upon Jesus Christ in whom we have redemption We can say, as did Paul, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Just so good, isn't it? I just get excited talking about this because I've been through hard things. I know that you have too. And those that are younger that are listening, I know that you have hard things that you've gone through and there will be more hard things for you to go through, which is why this particular episode is so important because it is all about learning how to do hard things and get through hard things and face hard things in a positive way to maintain our our joy and our peace regardless of the circumstances that we might find ourselves in. And that is really one of the great keys to happiness in life. 
So a few principles from this week's Come Follow Me with the hopes and the understanding that you will read through these intently looking for all of the different ways that Paul teaches that we can find peace and joy, especially in turbulent times. Principle one, we're going to begin by looking at Philippians chapter 3 verses 13 through 15. So take a second and turn there. Here is one of the great keys to maintaining a positive attitude in difficult times and in going through hard things. Starting in verse 13, Paul writes, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. I press forward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many as be perfect, be thus minded. And if in anything be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. Now again, some of the writing, the words, the way that uh, they're put together can be a little confusing in the Bible. Uh, we're not used to this kind of manner of, of speaking in, in language. But the, the key here is in verse 13. Did you notice what mindset Paul says that he has developed that has helped him to look forward with faith instead of with fear and discouragement and doubt. He says, This one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors, once said that there are far, far better things ahead than any that we leave behind. But, as someone else once said, getting over a painful experience is much like crossing monkey bars. You have to let go at some point in order to move forward. And I think that's exactly what Paul is trying to teach us. It can be so easy to get caught up in things that have happened in the past. So much so that those things, albeit painful and difficult and hard, they sap our strength, they sap our spirit, they sap our courage, they sap everything that we need to move forward. It is really a lot like playing on monkey bars. If you hold on too long to one bar, you start to get weaker and weaker. The key to getting across the other side is to go quickly, to let go of the past as fast as you can, and to grab hold to what's in front of you, and then to do it again and again until you find yourself on the other side. That is a key to living happily in the world today. Now, we're going to talk a little bit about some of the painful things that I'm sure you've experienced. I know I've experienced in life and how easy, again, it can be to get caught up in just being stuck in the past, in looking backward instead of forward. I, like you, have had people say things to me that I have had a hard time letting go of. I've had people do things to me that have been even harder to let go of. I've been in circumstances that I didn't want to change, but that needed to. I've had good things in my life that I didn't want to let go of, but I recognized were necessary for me to let go of so that I could have something more and something better. You guys, life in many, many ways is an experience in learning to let go. Years ago, a friend shared with me a story that he'd come across in Reader's Digest that I've since heard retold in a number of different ways. But the premise was basically this, that a group of researchers wanted to study a certain group of monkeys better. However, they just couldn't seem to devise a trap that was effective enough to catch the monkeys that wouldn't also possibly injure them. Until one day, they heard about a method to trap monkeys that had been used for generations by tribes of African natives that they were completely unaware of. 
what they would do is take a coconut or some form of hollow gourd and basically make a hole into it, just large enough for a monkey to slip its hand through. And then on the inside of this coconut or gourd or whatever it is that they were using, they would put some kind of food, some kind of nuts or fruit, something that a monkey would want. And then they would attach what it was encased in to a chain. Or sometimes they just weigh it down with rocks or something heavy so that it couldn't move. Now, do you see where they're going with this? Because there was something that was inside that the monkeys would want to grab, all they would then need to do is just sit back and wait. And it wouldn't take long for a monkey to find the food, slip its hand in through the hole, and grab hold of it. And that was all it took. The tribe would then simply come out from wherever they were hiding, walk towards the monkey as calmly as possible, and capture it. They could do this because, you see, as the monkey grabbed the food, he was no longer able to take his hand, which was now in a fist, out of the hole of the coconut. And so it would just scream and cry and tug at it as it might, trying to escape the approaching captures, but it just couldn't break free. Why? Because it wouldn't let go. <laughs> Ever since watching, I don't know if you've, any of you are familiar with the movie Swiss Family Robinson. It's an old, old Disney show, but one that I grew up with and probably your parents would be familiar with. I have, ever since watching that show, I've had a love for monkeys um, as a kid and, and often dreamed of even having one as a pet myself now as an adult. But while hearing this story and thinking of those poor innocent monkeys so afraid and trying so hard to escape, as much as I love monkeys, I couldn't help but think, oh, you stupid monkey, just let go, just let go. Well, unfortunately, since then, I've also come to realize just how much we can be like those stupid monkeys and refuse to let go of things that could help us to be more free. There are so many things, aren't there, that can keep us stuck because we refuse to simply let them go. I remember the Savior teaching on one occasion in Luke chapter 17, verse 32, a similar truth and doctrine, trying to encourage those to not look back and to let go of whatever was behind them. When he said, Even thus shall it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. In that day, he which shall be upon the housetop and his stuff in the house, let him not come down to take it away. And he that is in the field, let him likewise not return back. Then he says this, Remember Lot's wife. Almost as a warning to each and every one of us. Now, if you're not familiar with Lot's wife, you, you probably are familiar a little bit with the story of a person or a woman that looked back at a particular city at a particular point in time and was turned into a pillar of salt. <laughs> now, there are a lot of things in the scriptures that we don't know for sure happened either literally or are figurative in their explanations. But basically, the story is this, that the city, the great city of Sodom and Gomorrah became so wicked and so evil that it was to be destroyed. And very few that were willing to listen to the prophet at the time was were given warning to leave. Well, Lot and his family were given just such a warning, and so they left. And they didn't have time to take much of anything with them because of the impending destruction that was coming. They were told and basically warned that to simply leave and to not look back. However, Lot's wife, as it's recorded, looked back and as a result was turned into a pillar of salt. Now, chances are that that was very figurative in nature and not necessarily something that literally happened. Uh, Sodom and Gomorrah was a very worldly city where there were obviously a lot of worldly desires that led people to do 
things they probably shouldn't be doing. Well, because of such great wickedness, it was destroyed. And many biblical scholars believe that where Sodom and Gomorrah was is where the Dead Sea is now. Which, if you know anything about the Dead Sea, the reason why it is called the Dead Sea is because there can be no life in it. And the reason why there can be no life in it and it's called the Dead Sea is because there is so much salt in it. So it's very possible that that's why the reference to her being turned to a pillar of salt. But if you take it in context of what the Savior was saying, you know, in the day that he shall come, those that are on the housetop, don't take the time, don't take time to go down and get your stuff before you come meet me. Or those that are in the field, don't go back and get what you need before you come meet me. Indicates that Lot's problem, Lot's wife's problem, wasn't probably so much just looking back as it was going back. She most likely returned to that city and was destroyed with it. And why? Well, probably a lot like that monkey. She just couldn't let go of whatever it was that she had there, that she'd come to love there that was of the world. In an article written by Kenneth L. Higby for the church, he tells the story of a newspaper editor who in speaking to a college graduating class asked, how many of you have ever sawed wood? And let's see your hands. Of course, he said there were many hands that went up. I mean, we've all had the opportunity at some point to saw wood, right? Well, then he asked, how many of you have ever sawed sawdust? And no hands went up. Well, he went on to say that, of course, you haven't because, well, you can't saw sawdust. (laughs) Although I'm tempted to try after reading the story. I would uh, encourage you not to, but you can imagine how pointless that would probably be. He exclaimed, it's already been sawed. That's the reason. And it's the same with the past. When you start worrying about things that have already happened, that are over and done with, you are merely trying to saw sawdust. He went on to point out that too many people make themselves miserable by dwelling needlessly on their past and failures and mistakes. They lie awake at night agonizing over the mistakes that they've made and what they should have done or shouldn't have done. Almost everyone occasionally does thoughtless, impulsive things that bring unpleasant consequences. Almost everyone occasionally misses golden opportunities through apathy or oversight. Almost everyone may be occasionally selfish or unkind. And everyone certainly has terrible things done to them or said to them by others. We cannot help feeling despair over such occasions or anger or whatever other emotions are part of that. But, he says, we should not feel as if we ought to be exiled from the human race simply because of them. In fact, mistakes are not only an acceptable part of life, they may even be beneficial. The intelligent use of our mistakes helps us to learn and grow. Past failures can be guideposts to future successes. He said, I'd go so far as to say that no success in life came before failure. And that is absolutely true. Success is built on the back of failures. But our failures and mistakes can be constructive only if we analyze them, gain what profit we can from them, and then move on and forget them and leave them behind in the past where they belong. Will Rogers undoubtedly had this in mind when he said, Never yet let yesterday use up too much of today. Now, I want you to consider that for a moment, young people. I know how easy it is for you to be offended, for somebody to say things that are hurtful or mean, how easy it is to get caught up in gossip and things that have happened in the past. 
But I want you to see if you can answer that question. How are you doing at never letting yesterday use up too much of today? Boy, how often do we not quite meet that standard? How often do we let yesterday basically take up all of today? Ralph Waldo Emerson advised, Finish every day and be done with it. You have done what you could. Some blunders and absurdities no doubt creep in. Forget them as soon as you can. Tomorrow's a new day. Begin it well and serenely, and with too high a spirit to be cumbered with your old nonsense. That is the principle. That's the mindset that Paul is telling us and teaching us and showing us that he's developed within himself. He's in a very difficult situation that has certainly been painful, but he's developed this mindset so powerfully that he's able to let it go almost immediately as it happens. It's like the the water on a duck's back. That's how we want to be. Just let it roll off so that it doesn't sink us by its weight. I think that's one of the reasons, you guys, why God created day and night. Have you ever wondered about that? Would it be nice or easier just to sleep for a week and then maybe be awake for a week or not have to sleep or <laughs> or just sleep all the time? I know teenagers love sleep, but it's almost like in the creation of day and night, he is also teaching us that, you know, we are going to have things happen, much of which will be bad, will be painful, will be hard. But it's almost like he's saying, take it, experience it, learn from it in the day, but then let it go. Because tomorrow's a whole new day and we get to start all over again and try to do it right or try to let go and, and move forward without it weighing us down. And I love that about the way that God has designed life for us. Ludwig Miles van der Rohe, an American-German architect and one of the pioneers of modernist architecture, once said, and this is a very true statement, it is not possible to go forward while looking back. If you want proof of that, I'll give you a challenge. You look backwards as much as you can. You turn that neck around as, as far as you can and then try to walk forward and see how far you get without stumbling, without falling, without hurting yourself. Because it really is true. When we get caught up looking in the past, it's impossible to move forward in the future. We really have a choice, you guys, when we have things that happen to us that aren't always in our control. When we make mistakes ourselves, any of those kinds of things that can weigh us down or, or make us become discouraged, we really have the choice of becoming bitter because of them or becoming better. And that is a powerful opportunity that is in front of us almost every day, isn't it? I don't know that there has been one single day where somebody hasn't said something or done something to hurt my feelings, but I am learning to find strength in Christ to be able to deal with them. One of the things that Christ can help us to do, one of the hardest things he can help us to do, is to learn to let go of the pain, of the heartache, of the mistakes, of the past, and move forward in powerful ways and better ways in the future. Now, a couple key questions for you to really consider on this one, because I know that this one applies to each and every one of you that are listening. First of all, what has been something recently that has been painful that has happened to you? that is now in your past, but that is something that has been hard to let go of. Another question, why has it been so hard to let go of and move forward? Another question, what are the feelings associated with whatever it was that's happened or with the person that did or said something to you? Why do you think it's important 
to try to let go of past hurt and pain, no matter how hurtful or painful it is. Another question to consider is, how have you seen someone hold on to something like grudges or pain and refuse to forgive and let go? And as you've thought of this person, what has that done to them? Another question is, how can you be patient with yourself in learning to let go? Because it's one thing to say it, it's another thing to do it. And it's important to learn to be patient with ourselves in this process. How do these principles that we've talked about so far, this principle in particular, relate to the world and letting go of it and some of the desires that we have for things that are worldly? What are some of the things that we might be tempted, like Lot's wife was, to go back and to run back to? Why does the Lord want us to learn to let go of the world? And why is that so hard? (laughs) Some pretty deep questions, the ones that have been helpful for me to contemplate. Um, Principle two. I want to take a look. We'll just turn the page a little bit. I want to turn to chapter four. And we're going to look at that one particular verse in verse 13. You absolutely need to mark this if you haven't already, to which Paul just bears testimony powerfully and simply that I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Now I want to take a a little bit of a different approach with this particular verse and principle. In my sister's home, and probably in many of yours, hangs a sign that says, I can do hard things. <laughs> I used to hate that sign. And I hate, used to hate that, that phrase. <laughs> because who wants to really do hard things? I'm more about, uh, give me an easy button. And whenever things get hard, just let me push that and have everything fixed. That's the way I want it to be. But I remember seeing a post on social media a little while ago that uh, really stood out to me. A woman that had referenced this particular thought, I can do hard things, said it really is not so much I can do hard things, but that I must do hard things. And I thought about why is that true? It just sounded true to me because I knew that there would be hard things in life. And yes, I didn't want to experience them, but I knew that that was just going to be a part of life. And that is a part of life. Why? Because life is a test. God himself has said that he would prove us to see if we would do all things whatsoever he commanded us. The prophet Joseph pointed out on one occasion that God will feel after each of us and and pull on our heartstrings. And if we are not able to stand it, that we won't be prepared and fit for a place in his kingdom. Life is meant to be a test, which means it's meant to be hard. But there is purpose in the hard. That's why we must do them. We must go through them because that's where growth comes from. I want to help you to see this and we're going to take a a look at one of my favorite places and that's through the eyes of pets and one pet in particular. How many of you have pets at home? I'll bet many of you do whether it's a dog, a cat, a a fish, maybe some birds, maybe a turtle, uh, some lizards, maybe I don't know a snake. I doubt any of you have monkeys darn it but uh, what about hermit crabs? Any of you happen to have a hermit crab? (laughs) I think that'd be awesome if you did. Uh, when our little dog, Bear, died, that was his name in, in my family a few years ago, my daughters wanted another pet. And I wasn't prepared to get another dog or something that would be difficult. So I got them hermit crabs. <laughs> very simple, very easy to take care of. Now, if you don't know what a hermit crab, listen to this. Hermit crabs live within 
uh, salvaged empty shells, basically. And as the hermit cab, crab grows, it is forced out of its shell because it's just getting too crammed, too small, and it has to find a new one. Well, it's in that moment, as it grows out of one shell and has to look for a new one, that it is particularly vulnerable. I'd imagine if a hermit crab had feelings, and maybe they do, that that must be an incredibly difficult and frightening period of time. I watched our little crabs whenever they felt threatened or scared. They would just do what a lot of us do. They disappeared right into their shells. And there wasn't much that you could do to get them out. We're kind of like that, aren't we? We're quick to run away from vulnerability and being uncomfortable and from hard things. And we want to stay safe and secure in what we know is familiar. Yet, there are times that, just like those hermit crabs, you and I will outgrow our present situation or circumstances. And life will require us to move on to something new. I know that many of you have already experienced that in small ways. And when you graduate high school and move into college, that's going to be a very vulnerable and frightening time. You probably remember the transition from middle school to high school and how you probably felt very much like a hermit crab out of its shell moving into a new one, uh, completely scared and vulnerable, not knowing what to do or what to expect in this kind of new environment that you found yourself in. Yet as time went on, what happened? You got comfortable. You began to grow into that shell and it began to be a, a wonderful experience. I want you to see that you've had so many of these moments already in going through hard and, and doing hard things. And I want you to think back on a few more of those. Think about how many of you have gone on your first date. Do you remember that? You remember how nervous and vulnerable you felt and started dating? Uh, calling girls scared me to death in high school. That was one of the most difficult things I've ever done. I just, I couldn't take the easy way out and text them. That wasn't an option for me back then. I had to talk to them. I remember I would literally write out a list of questions to ask them uh, when I would call them on the phone and just kind of probably sound like a robot going down these questions, but I had to do it. Maybe some of you have started a new job this year. Do you remember how you felt that first day walking in, not knowing what to do? You were like a hermit crab out of its shell, moving into a new one. Each time you go through something like that, it's like leaving your old shell and moving into a new one that will then accommodate your new growth. So I guess my message in this is to not be afraid of the hard because it is necessary for you to grow and it will never stop happening to you throughout your life. Ask any adult that we are continuing to go through this. President Russell M. Nelson said concerning this really and you as young people that the Lord has more in mind for you than you have for yourself, that you have been reserved and preserved for this time and place and that you can do hard things. It's not just that I can do hard things, but I must do hard things and then eventually come to see the, the reason for those and understand the potential and opportunities that are in them and then develop the mindset that I will do hard things. The fact of the matter is, is that there will just be hard things in life. There's no getting around that. The only thing that you and I can control is how we go through them and how we allow them to go through us. If we allow them to make us or break us. And the best source of strength, the best source of power, of comfort and support in helping in going through hard things is Christ. 
I had in my own life multiple times every reason to be angry at God, and at times I have been. But I know that life is so much easier with Him than it is without Him. And I hope that you guys have come to learn that already for yourself. If not, you will. But have you noticed a difference in your day or in your week or in your month or even a year when you weren't praying or going to church or reading your scriptures or connecting with him in some way? I mean, who was it that got Nephi through his wilderness and all that he experienced in the promised land? while a couple brothers of his didn't get through it in that kind of a way and lost their faith and testimony. They did not want to go through hard things, did they? And who was it that got the children of Israel through all that they experienced and out of Egypt and out of the world to their promised land? It's easy to think, where is God when we're going through hard things, isn't it? Even Joseph asked when he was in Liberty Jail, God, where art thou? I remember watching not too long ago the movie Creed II, It's always been one of my favorites. For those that haven't seen it, it's basically the story of Apollo Creed's son being trained by Rocky, Rocky Balboa, to become a boxer and a fighter as well. And in Creed 2, he's kind of at the top and at the very beginning, but then gets beaten badly. And he is broken and just a mess and is left to try to pick up the pieces, which is very hard for him to do. But he does that and he starts preparing to bounce back and to come back and for his next fight. Well, there's a point in his training where he is running behind Rocky's car while he's driving, because Rocky's a little older at this point, and he's given it everything that he has, but it just is too much. And at one point, he collapses. This is the lowest point probably that he has been. He just falls on the dirt road behind Rocky, who's driving the car in front of him, just completely collapses out of sheer exhaustion. Now, when I first saw that, I remember thinking to myself, Rocky, get out of the car. Go give him some water. Go help him out. Go pick him back up. Go encourage him. Go support him. But you know what Rocky doesn't do? Any of that. (laughs) But what he does do is he just looks in that rearview mirror and he says to himself multiple times, get up, kid. Get up. Get up, kid. You got this. And then you have this just pivotal moment where Creed begins to, to push himself up off the ground with he's going through everything in his mind that he's fighting for and somehow he finds the strength and the raw determination to keep going and to keep pushing forward and he starts running even harder than he did before and it's at that moment where everything changes in his training everything changes in his mindset and as you can imagine he goes on to do great things well for me i had an epiphany when i was watching that i thought to myself I wonder at times if God isn't like Rocky. He is training us. He is pulling us forward. He is motivating us. He's giving us everything that he needs. But occasionally, we're going to collapse out of sheer exhaustion. We're going to fall down. And yes, there's a part of us that wants God to run to our rescue and to, to help us to fix the situation, to wave his magic wand, snap his fingers, whatever, perform a miracle, and help us to get back up and moving forward and to even just win the fight for us. Yet, the best thing that Rocky did for Adonis Creed was allow him to get up himself. It was that strength, that determination found within him that would help him through the fight and the other fights that were to come. So, I wonder sometimes if God allows us to struggle a bit, if he allows you to struggle a bit, maybe it's because he knows the growth you need for the fight ahead will be found in that struggle. In picking yourself back up and pushing forward, 
And it doesn't mean that he's not there, and it doesn't mean that he doesn't care. I really believe he's always closer than you and I think. But maybe he's just simply looking back in that rearview mirror saying, Get up, kid. Get up. You can do this. I know you can. I believe in you. Believe in yourself. I'm here if you need me, but you are also stronger than you think. I think that's one of the reasons why Nephi teaches that we have access to God's grace and God's power after all that we can do. God knows that we are stronger than what we probably think that we are. And so he allows us to struggle a little bit to find that strength within before he then matches it with his strength without. Now, there are two things I have found in life that will be two of the hardest things that he'll ask us to do that we need to learn to do sooner than later. Number one is to give him the pen to our life story, to trust him with it. Even if we can't see how things could possibly turn out good or okay, given whatever situation or circumstance we're in or whatever happens to us, to still surrender to his will, to give him that pen and to basically say, I trust you to write a happy ending for me, even if I'm not happy right now and I'm going through something hard. And number two is to give him our sins. Those we like to keep close to the vest, don't we? We don't want to let anyone else see them. We don't want to, him to see them. We don't want to give them away. And so we keep them. But the longer we hold them, it's like holding any weight. That weight gets heavier and heavier. And although they may be small, they become great if we hold on to them and don't repent of them and give them to him. But when we trust both our life story and our sins to Christ, as President Howard W. Hunter said, if our lives and our faith are centered on Jesus Christ and his restored gospel, nothing can ever go permanently wrong. On the other hand, if our lives are not centered on the Savior and his teachings, no other success can ever be permanently right. Remember, you guys, I must do hard things. I can do hard things. I will do hard things. And I know that I can do all things through Christ. And when things don't go the way that you want, and you're tempted to let go of Christ, that's the one thing we can never let go of. Try to remember what Elder Holland once taught about going through hard things when he said, Some blessings come soon, some come late, and some don't come until heaven. But for those who embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ, they come. Now, a couple key questions on that principle. Number one, what is something hard that you have had to go through? And how did you feel when you were going through it? Do you remember feeling afraid? Do you remember feeling vulnerable? Kind of like a hermit crab outside of its shell? And how did you learn or grow from that experience? Why is it that you think that we are so afraid of hard things? How might we come to see hard things that we go through as an opportunity and maybe even as a gift? How can you better give the pen to your life story to Christ and trust Him with your story, no matter what hard things come into your life? What will be the ending of your story if you learn to turn over the pen to Christ? How might giving Christ our sins be one of the hardest things that we do? Why is it that confession is so hard? Why has God required that typically as a part of of the repentance process. Why is confession so important to the repentance process? 
How is confession like moving out of hiding and security and becoming vulnerable to God? And how does confession allow us to move into a new shell, a better shell, and move forward to experience growth? The reason that I mentioned confession, just by the way, in some of these questions, is I remember as a young person being so afraid of having to tell anybody about the terrible things that I did, which weren't really that terrible, but you know they were things that needed to be confessed of and talked to a bishop at, at times. And uh, as adults, uh, we, we still make mistakes and at times still need to talk to, to bishops. I just wanted to convey to you this amazing truth. Some of the most vulnerable moments of my life have been when I have had to admit to a bishop, to priesthood leaders, to my parents of the disappointing things that I've done. But they have always been followed by some of the most beautiful, loving, and accepting experiences of my life as well. I don't know if that will always be the way with your parents. Sometimes as parents, we have work to do to be more accepting of our kids and their shortcomings and remember our own in the process. But I can almost guarantee that just about every bishop will look at you as the Savior looks at you. That's what he's meant to do. That's his calling, is to look at you with eyes of love and understanding and patience and acceptance and to help you get through those mistakes, to help you navigate any consequences that might be a part of them, and to help you to feel loved and valued as a person regardless of them. It's Satan that always attacks with shame. None of that ever comes from God. Please, please, please understand that. And the confession process is one of those times where you will need to leave the security in the shell of the past and the mistakes that you've made and move into something new, something better, an opportunity to to grow, to learn from them, to repent of them, to bring the Spirit back into your life as full as possible. And yeah, it's scary and it's vulnerable, but it is worth it, young people. Now, principle three, we'll end with this one. There are two verses I want to take a look at. First is in the book of Colossians, chapter three, verses one to two. This is another great mindset um, and ability to develop within ourselves that Paul is referencing here that I think is one of the reasons it's helping him to deal with some of the challenges and the negative things in his life. In chapter three, verses one through two in Colossians, it reads, if ye then be risen with Christ, Seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. And I know that's a lot easier to say than do, as there are so many cool and amazing things here on on the earth. But one of the keys to happiness and being able to get through hard things and do hard things is to always have an eternal focus, which is one of the reasons why I love, love, love so much President Nelson's counsel to think celestial think celestial think celestial along with that verse go back to um, philippians in chapter 4 verse 11 this is one of the things that we can develop by learning to focus on heavenly things instead of earthly things chapter 4 in philippians verse 11 paul says now that i speak in respect of want for i have learned in whatsoever state i am therein to be content I love that statement. And that's something I've been desperately trying to learn for myself. It's so interesting, isn't it? God has in mind to give us everything. And yet the only way that we're going to be ready and prepared for it is to be willing and able to let it go. That's 
Christ in a nutshell. He was completely submissive to his father's will, even to the point of coming down in a manger. The God of heaven and earth, the creator of all things, he is okay without God's power, without all of his possessions, without everything that God has, which is exactly why he was the perfect one and the only one that was able to handle it and to be given all of it. Satan couldn't. He couldn't handle it. He wanted it all, and that's why he fell. We need to learn to develop that same ability to let the world go. And one of the ways that we can do that is to learn to be content in whatever state we are in. Some time ago, I I came across the book that my grandma had put together years ago. It's about the cutest thing that I've seen. It's, It's title of this book were simply Thoughts Dear to My Heart with All My Love, Grandma. On the cover was a little picture of her holding a beautiful flower bouquet and with an equally beautiful smile. I love and I miss my grandma. She was just one of the best people I know with one of the most loving and kind hearts that a person could possibly have. And as I was flipping through the pages, reading all the thoughts that my dear grandma had put together, I realized two things. One, that I was getting a glimpse, not just into those thoughts that were near and dear to my grandma's heart, but I was getting a glimpse into her heart. Every thought, every quote, every poem, every story was inspirational and Christ-centered and focused on becoming a better person. She was the living embodiment of every one of these thoughts that she was now sharing. And I was turning, as I was turning through the pages, there was one in particular that stuck out to me that really goes along with the thought of and the need that we all have to learn to be content with, with what we have. And the, the story is called Brighten the Corner Where You Are. And it's a, a short, simple poem that reads like this. We cannot all be famous or be listed in who's who, but every person, great or small, has an important work to do. For seldom do we realize the importance of small deeds or to what degree of greatness unnoticed kindness leads. For it's not the big celebrity in a world of fame and praise, but it's doing unpretentiously in undistinguished ways. The work that God assigned to us, unimportant as it seems, that makes our task outstanding and brings reality to dreams. So do not sit and idly wish for wider new dimensions where you can put in practice your many good intentions. But at the spot God placed you, begin at once to do little things to brighten up the lives surrounding you. For if everybody brightened up the spot on which they're standing by being more considerate and a little less demanding, the dark old world would soon eclipse the evening star if everybody brightened up the corner where they are. (laughs) love that poem. The author is Helen Steiner Rice. And really the principle from this poem is one that I think I often need to hear and be reminded of. I know as of late, I've, I've had a lot of ambition to do more and have more and all those kinds of things. And sometimes our ambitions can get the best of us. And sometimes wanting more out of life can leave us feeling like we have less, maybe even that we are less. And that all leads to us not appreciating what it is that we really have. I remember Alma in the scriptures uh, towards the end of his missionary service. He had the desire to be like an angel in promoting the gospel with the sound of a trumpet, he said to all the world. But right after expressing this desire of his heart, a desire that I might add is a really good desire. A lot of your desires probably would mirror a lot of mine that 
It's natural to, to want a new car, a new home, or more success or more money. I know personally I'd like a cabin and a condo and a few other fun things, maybe a horse or two. And honestly, though, there's nothing wrong with these desires, but even after expressing the best of desires, this great prophet followed up this expression of desire by teaching a wonderful truth. He said, But behold, I am a man, and do sin in my wish, for I ought to be content with the things which the Lord hath allotted unto me. I mentioned that again, for I ought to be content with the things which the Lord hath allotted unto me. Elder Neil A. Maxwell, in teaching about learning to be content, once taught that, Nevertheless, we are to do what we can within our allotted acreage, our little corners, uh, to go back to the poem that my grandma gave me, while still using whatever stretch there may be in any tethers. We all will experience limitations to our desires in some form or another, as he teaches, yet there are other fixed limitations in life. For instance, some have allotments including physical, mental, or geographic constraints. There are those who are unmarried, through no fault of their own, or yearning but childless couples. Still others face persistent and unreconciled relationships within their circles of loved ones, including offspring who have become for themselves resistant to parental counsel. In such and similar situations, there are so many prickly and daily reminders. Being content means acceptance without self-pity. Meekly born, however, deprivations such as these can end up being like excavations that make room for greatly enlarged souls. And I just love that thought, love Elder Maxwell. I have found for myself that some of our greatest moments of testing in life, some of the hardest things that we'll learn to do, will not necessarily come from having less, but accepting less, if that makes sense. Thus, developing greater contentment within certain of our existing constraints and opportunities is one of our challenges, as Elder Maxwell said. Otherwise, we may feel underused, underwhelmed, and underappreciated, while ironically within our givens are unused opportunities for service all around us. And then Elder Maxwell points this out, that each of us, we serve as each other's clinical material in the particular sample of humanity constituting what is allotted unto us. The sample may shrink or swell, meaning that there may be more people we have the opportunity to influence and there may at times be less. But most important is what we are and what we do within those varied allocations and in the particular work to which we have been called. And then he makes this wonderful point. Performance is what matters, not the size of the stage. Can I reemphasize that? I love it. Performance is what matters, not the size of the stage. We can and ought to be content with the things allotted to us, being circumstantially content, but without being self-satisfied and behaviorally content with ourselves. That's the balance. And that's a tough balance to find. Basically, acceptance of what we've been given without resignation to make the best of it. What a beautiful balance that is to find. And he concludes by saying that such contentment is more than shoulder-shrugging passivity. It reflects our participative assent rather than uncaring resignation. The Maxwell reminds me a little bit of, of Paul. He, he uses words that are difficult to understand, but there's just something good and true about him. The idea and the principle that he's teaching 
is to learn to be content with what we have been given. Or, as Paul taught, Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am, therewith to be content, and to seek for things which are above instead of on the earth beneath. To seek for the eternal instead of the temporal. To think celestial. Now, a couple key questions for you guys on this principle. How does want currently affect you? Ooh, that's a good question. What are some things that are on your list that you've always wanted? And how can want rob us of happiness here and now? What can we do to be more content with what we have? How does contentment bring greater happiness in life? How long does happiness last once we get something that we want? You notice this? How long does happiness last if we are content with what we have? And is it okay to desire things and want things? And if so, how do we balance those desires with being content? How is learning to be content like submitting our will to God's? And what can you do starting today to appreciate more of what you have and focus a little less on what you don't? I love these chapters and I love these principles and I hope that they've been helpful to you and I hope that you'll take the time to go through obviously the rest of these these scriptures and in, in these books and find these kinds of doctrines and truths and principles. Doctrines and truths and principles that can bring guidance and direction to your life that can help refine you and help you to become better as you navigate life's challenges and learn for yourself who God is and what his plan for you involves. As always, please remember that this person, the person, is greatest and most blessed and joyful and most content, I would say, whose life most closely approaches the pattern of the Christ. This has nothing to do with earthly wealth, power, or prestige. The only true test of greatness, blessedness, joyfulness is how close a life can come to being like the Master Jesus Christ. He is the right way, the full truth, and the abundant life, and he invites us all to come follow me. So as always, let's follow him better this week and become better as we follow him. Until next time, everyone, I'm Josh Downs, and you've been listening to Come Follow Me for Teens.